0: What a privilege and blessing to worship the Lord together. Amen. Let's open our time in a word of prayer. Our Father, once again, we are such a blessed and privileged people to be able to open up your word and to have a Bible in our hands. We're so grateful to you that we can behold uh, your character and your beauty and your majesty on the pages of your holy word. We thank you that in your word you have revealed your redemptive plan and in through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can offer praise and adoration and glory to you, Lord, even though you are the inherently glorious one who doesn't need our praise. Thank you that we have the privilege of doing that. Pray that even now, Lord, as we uh, once again look at your word, that we would be people who would set aside distractions and focus upon the message that you have for us today. And that we might be people who walk away changed, putting into practice that which we learn, so that your Son may be exalted in our hearts and lives. And we ask you all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the focus uh, for this month of October uh, is the spiritual discipline of study. Um, And the text for this morning that we are going to be addressing that particular discipline from is 2 Timothy chapter 3, And verse 16. So if you have your Bibles, open them there to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And as you turn there, would you believe that two years from this October 31st, we will be celebrating a monumental event in the uh, history of Christianity. Anybody know what that monumental event is? The Protestant Reformation, yeah. Yeah. will be the 500-year anniversary in a couple of years, October 31st, of the anniversary of that great event, the Protestant Reformation. It is believed that the official start of the Reformation was October 31st, 1517 in Wittenberg, Saxony, where, as you know, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. And what a wonderful, wonderful thing that is. And one of Great heritage that we have because of those men that got used during a very critical period in the life of the church. But you know, there were some forerunners to that uh, significant event, and one of them, an Englishman by the name of William uh, Tyndale. Uh, William Tyndale lived from 1494 to 1536, and he was a man who longed for people in England to be able to read and understand the scriptures in their own English language for themselves. Uh, John Wycliffe had had produced an English uh, translation years before, but by Tyndale's time, the English of the day had changed significantly. So Tyndale uh, spent uh, his life translating much of the Bible. Uh, He finished, in fact, uh, the New Testament and much of the Old Testament, as well as writing some commentaries on several books of the Bible. Uh, He did this for a number of years. But Tyndale was not able to finish his translation of the Old Testament because he was arrested by officials of the Roman Catholic Church, including one traitor in particular by the name of Henry Phillips, who pretended to uh, uh, be interested in his translations, but he really wanted money and turned in Tyndale for money. So Tyndale was put in a jail cell in just horrible conditions, a small, damp, filthy little place, a gloomy prison cell where he spent many many days uh, but even in jail he was a powerful witness uh, Tyndale shared the gospel with prisoners there and in fact there's testimony of one of them stating if this man William Tyndale is not a good Christian we don't know what good is anymore So he was, uh, even in jail, he continued to proclaim Christ and be a testimony to people who were in there. And even in jail, even in those difficult conditions uh, in that jail cell, he continued translating uh, parts of the Old Testament. In fact, he translated Joshua through Second Chronicles while in prison in those difficult circumstances. So great was this man's commitment to devotion to the Lord, to personal study... And to the translation work of the scriptures that it is preserved uh, by historians one particular letter where Tyndale begs the head of the prison uh, for warmer clothing and that he may be allowed to use his Hebrew Bible, his grammar and his dictionary. So this was a man who walked with God and a man who had a great heart for translation work to be passed on to the common folk so that they might be able to read the word of God for themselves. After 500 years, uh, not years, but days of imprisonment, that would be interesting if he lived 500 years. 500 days of imprisonment, he was uh, eventually executed. Uh, the executioners uh, bound him to a stake. Uh, they strangled him with the chain tied around his neck, and they burned his body to ashes. Uh, William Tyndale was 42 years old uh, when he was burned at the stake. But as one church father had said previously, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because even though Tyndale was martyred uh, for the work that he was doing for the gospel and for translation, uh, there was an English Bible produced later on called the Great Bible of 1539 that was published. And later on, even King Henry of England ordered that every church in England was to have a copy of this Bible so that people would read it and hear it. So by royal permission, several editions of this Bible were circulated all over the place. So his death and his martyrdom were certainly not in vain. Uh, in fact, later on, the translators of the uh, what we know as the King James Version of the Bible, 1611, lean heavily on Tyndale's work. Uh, it's estimated that more than 75% of Tyndale's work um, was used for the King James Bible, 1611. You know, beloved, William Tyndale was willing to give his life for translation and for this particular duty because he, he knew the vital importance of people having the very Word of God in their hands. And he gave his life for that. Tyndale could not take the fact that people were dying without being given the opportunity to read and understand and study the Bible for themselves. He believed the Bible was the lifeblood of the people. William Tyndale and men like John Wycliffe, they gave their lives to translation work in the face of opposition because they believed that the careful study and application of the Word of God was crucial for our lives. And we stand in a great heritage here in our own country where we we have a Bible in our hands. We have, in fact, many Bibles on our bookshelves at home and in different places. These men were men that God used as instruments, human instruments, to preserve His Word. How privileged we are to have a Bible. Amen? And we know that our Lord Jesus as well spoke about the importance of the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, He said this, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus pointed out the vital importance of the Word of God for our very survival. The prophet Jeremiah wrote this in Jeremiah 15 and verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. The prophet Jeremiah internalized the word of God. And they were the joy and the delight of his heart and of his life. How important and vital is the word of God, beloved, for our spiritual maturity. For our spiritual vibrancy. And yet, if we're really honest with ourselves, how little many of us spend in the Word of God. How little time we spend. How little time we spend reflecting upon the Word of God, meditating upon the Word of God, memorizing the Word of God, applying the Word of God. How much blood and toil and sweat has gone into our Bibles being preserved so that we have a copy of the Bible in our hands, and how little we study it, if we're really honest and beloved, I want to encourage us this morning to study the Bible. To study the Bible. To read it. And not just to read it, to clock in and out of some spiritual exercise, but to meditate upon the Bible. To memorize the scripture. To delight in the Word of God and apply it. Because we have a great treasure in the Word of God, do we not? Great treasure and yet many of us have become dull of hearing the word of god and indifferent to its life-giving message indifference and dullness is what characterizes many of us and that's tied to the fact that we have neglected the word of god in our own lives and i'm not just talking about reading it i'm talking about truly saturating yourself in the word of god and beholding god in his word well in 2 timothy 3:16 through 17 I want us to look at some exhortations from the Apostle Paul here that I think are pertinent for us. This is one of the most powerful passages on the Scriptures and contains much for us to reflect upon. And I want to read it, Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. I want you to hear. You don't have to stand up. Second Timothy 3.14 says this, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. As Paul writes to his child in the faith timothy he reminds him of his need to hold on to that which he has been passed on to him later on in chapter 4 verses 1 and following he's going to exhort timothy to preach the word to be ready in season and out of season to reprove rebuke and exhort with great patience and instruction because the word of god is the means and the instrument by which the people of god grow and sin is exposed and they're rebuilt again towards greater christ likeness Paul wants his spiritual son Timothy to guard this treasure and to preach the unadulterated scriptures and to expose the people of God to the word of God in a time where people are going to want to have their ears tickled rather than hearing sound, healthy teaching. And from this passage, I want to give you three exhortations, three exhortations for studying the scriptures, that we may be people who are conformed unto the image of Christ and that we may be useful to our master. Three exhortations in particular for us to reflect upon. First of all, I want to exhort us to study the Bible for proper worship. Study the Bible for proper worship. Notice verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is inspired by God. Here in this opening statement, we learn of the divine origin of the scriptures. My New American Standard translation uses or translates a word here, inspired, which is kind of a misleading translation because it seems to indicate the action of breathing in. But Paul uses a compound word here consisting of two words, God and breathe, giving the sense of God breathing out or really expiring, expiring. The ESV translates this opening phrase best like this, all Scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, the Scripture comes come to us from God Himself. They originate from God to us. In fact, the same idea comes to us from the words of our Lord Jesus in a verse that I read in the introduction, Matthew 4, 4, where He says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The focus of this these opening words of verse 16 is that the scriptures originate from god they're not the creation of any human being one commentator writes this quote the scriptures are not a pre-existing body of human literature into which god breathes something divine but rather they owe their very existence to the out breathing of god's spirit The scriptures, not the writers of the scriptures, are inspired, end quote. All of this means that the scriptures are what originate from God. The scriptures are not the result of human ingenuity, of human creation. They come to us from God himself. The scriptures are of divine origin, coming to us from God. And notice in verse 16, How much of the scriptures are inspired? He says, all scripture is inspired by God. Every word, every individual part, as well as the whole of scripture, as a collective unit, comes to us from God. Paul has just mentioned in verse 15 the sacred writings, which refer to the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. But then Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 16, refers to Paul's writings also as scripture. The point is that Old Testament, New Testament, that which you contain in your Bibles, beloved, are absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, the very word of God, sacred scripture. So here we see, in this opening statement in verse 16, the divine origin of those scriptures. And in another place, Peter tells us how the scriptures were passed on through human instruments. How God used men to pass on, to pen down the exact words that he wanted. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 says this, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter there in first, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 tells us, himself writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that while God used men to pen down the words of Scripture, using their distinct personalities and their background and their human experiences, ultimately Scripture came from God Himself. The picture of men moved by the Holy Spirit there in Second Peter chapter 1 in fact is of a ship being carried along by its sail. In like manner, men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to pen down the exact words of God. We might say that the Spirit of God superintended the whole process by which these men pen down the exact very words of God. So the human, human beings, the human authors of Scripture, were merely human instruments that the Spirit of God superintended to write the exact and perfect words of God so that we have the very words of the living God in our hands, beloved. And as the very Word of God, if the Word of God comes to us from Him and it originates from Him, there are some wonderful implications for us. First of all, since the Scriptures come to us from God, then they are absolutely dependable as the character of the One who gave them. The Scriptures are absolutely dependable. You can trust in them. You can have confidence and assurance in the Word of God. Listen to these Scriptures, Psalm 12 and verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. Psalm 18 and verse 30 says this, As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. Second Samuel chapter 22 and verse 31, As for God, His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. These scriptures equate the reliability and trustworthiness of the Word of God with the very character of God, who is dependable and who is trustworthy. As God is perfect, so His Word is perfect and pure. As God is dependable, so is His Word dependable. You can bank on the truth, beloved, contained in the very Word of God. You can have absolute confidence and assurance that God's Word can be depended upon and trusted in. Because it is His. The second implication is that since Scripture comes to us from God, then it is absolutely authoritative. This means that Scripture is the final word. Think about that. We're living in a culture, in a nation, of anti-authority. People don't want to be a cannibal. People want to be autonomous. They don't want to have to answer to anybody. They want to be their own little God with a little G. And of course, people understand that the Bible makes some astounding claims concerning itself, does it not? So what are they going to try to do? They're going to try to disprove it or create a God, a little g-God, that is not the God of the Bible. In order to disprove what the Word of God says. People deny the authority of God and deny the existence of God in accordance with His Word. But what we see here is that we have the very words of the living God of the universe and everyone is accountable to God. Every single person is accountable to God because He has revealed Himself in His holy word. The Bible is absolutely authoritative, beloved. Absolutely authoritative. But there is one further implication of the Scriptures coming to us from God. And I don't want you to miss this. It's simply this. God has made Himself known to you. God has made Himself known to you and I. He has given us a revelation of Himself in the Scriptures. God wants to be known, does He not? He doesn't need us. He's inherently glorious in His infinite attributes, and yet He wants to be known and He's given us the blessing and the privilege of us being able to know Him. In the Bible, we learn of our amazing Creator as He is to be worshipped, of His glorious attributes, of His majesty and His splendor, of His justice and of His holiness, His wrath and His jealousy, His mercy and His grace, His compassion and His love. We can behold the attributes of God in His very Word. What a privilege and a blessing we have to be able to behold a God who is in absolute control over everything. Because we can read the Word of God. In His Word we have the great plan of salvation that God has initiated. So that people who are sinners like us can actually be reconciled to Him. We can read in the Word of God of this great God who is loving and who is a Redeemer. We can learn of His plan for the future. How everything ends. And the hope that those who believe in Christ have in the future. You see, when we open the pages of Scripture, we learn about God. He is revealed in His Word as the magnificent God. And as He is revealed in His Word, beloved, it should evoke our utter worship and adoration for our great God. Because He is majestic and glorious and He to be worshipped and worthy to be worshipped as the God that the Bible reveals. Think about this. Because you have a Bible in your hands, you can know God. You can know Him as revealed in His Word. How precious and glorious that is. And I fear that we often lose sight of the treasure that we have as Christians who are Americans here in this country. Where we have tons and tons of Bibles, tons and tons of literature lying around our homes, in our offices, all over the place. And we do not treasure the, the, the Bible as we should that reveals the, wor- the, the, the very living God of the universe who is glorious and majestic. I have seen videos and witnessed personally when Christians in previously co- closed countries to the gospel receive a Bible for the first time. And they cry and they weep aloud because they've never been able to own their own Bible. And now they have a Bible so that they can open it and get to know God and his redemption for sinners. I have been there in countries where pastors opened up boxes with theological books, good theology. And they start weeping and crying because they are so thankful that now they can actually study the word of God all the more. And yet we have so, so much in our own country, beloved. And we do not delight in the God of the Bible. Believers sitting there hugging the Bible. Delighting in knowing God. Worshipping God as revealed in His Word. I wonder how many of us study the Bible to know and to worship God like this. The agnostic does not believe that God can be known. But as Christians, we can have the assurance that if He has inspired His Word, He wants you to know Him. He wants you to know Him. The next time you study your Bible, don't just read it in order to clock in your day's worth of religion. Don't do that. Christianity is about a relationship with God, who is revealed in the Scriptures. The next time you, you read your Bible, meditate upon it. Reflect upon the word of God. Ask yourself pertinent questions. What does this passage tell me about God? What attributes or qualities of God can I praise and adore him for? Can I worship him for? Even as you read the Old Testament stories, think about David slinging that rock and wiping out Goliath. I have heard that story and taught over and over again as David is courageous. David was courageous. What courage David had. Well, that's true. But why was David courageous? Because he trusted in Yahweh, did he not? Because he trusted in God. So ask yourself, what does that story reveal to me about God, about his faithfulness, that David wipes out Goliath? And he's killed and the people of Israel are redeemed and they are delivered from the hands of the Philistines. And David is going to become this one king through whom the line of David, the forever king, will come. So it shows the faithfulness of God to preserve his people at the hands of the Philistines and many others. It reveals the fact that God is a God who keeps his word and preserves his people, you see. It reveals the mercy and the loving kindness, the steadfast, loyal love of God because his people were constantly rebellious. What was what kind of God is he? A forgiving God, a loving God, a God who will perform justice and will deplay, display His wrath towards sin, but will keep His promises. He's utterly faithful. See those stories reveal all kinds of attributes about who God is. I've been reading Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, talking about the exiles returned to Jerusalem. And reading about these amazing men, Zerubbabel, and Ezra, and Nehemiah, and my personal reading, amazing men who trusted God. But at the end of the day, I kept thinking about, wow, all the more the faithfulness of God, and the mercy of God, and the justice of God. Getting these men to be able to reform spiritually the people, and build up the walls of Jerusalem again. And the temple, using human instruments, human messengers like this. But... How amazing and loving and precious of God that He would use men like that and continue to be faithful to His promises to His people in delivering them. So ask yourself, beloved, as you read the Word of God, am I getting to know my God? Am I worshiping Him? Am I praising Him, adoring Him, ascribing glory to Him, the glory that belongs only to Him as I study the Scriptures? Study for proper worship. J.I. Packer writes this, quote, Study to know, sure, for there can be no spiritual health without doctrinal knowledge. Understanding must always be the foundation of feeling in the human heart. Otherwise, you can have baseless emotionalism. But understanding that does not give rise to feeling for God becomes intellectualism and deadness. So don't just study for knowledge, but for worship, end quote. Listen, don't simply read the Bible for knowledge's sake. for Because it's a, it's a stimulant for your intellect. So that you can wax eloquent to others and pontificate about all the great theological issues that other people know very little about. And you're the only one that knows about that stuff. Don't study for that reason. Study the scriptures... So that you may see God and savor who God is. So that it may evoke in you praise and honor and adoration and worship for your Creator. Study the Word of God so that you may come to know God as He is revealed on the pages of Scripture, beloved. Study the Bible for proper worship. Secondly, study the Bible for personal holiness. Study the Bible for personal holiness. You know, if you are a Christian, then what should characterize your life is hatred for sin. And your greatest desire should be to be more and more like Jesus. You should hate your sin all the more and want to be more and more like Christ. And I want you to see in verse 16 how the scriptures help us in that endeavor. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You know, few of us like to waste our time. I say few of us because some of us do. Right? We all want to engage in activities that are profitable, that are of personal benefit. Well, I am here to tell you that there is nothing, 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 nothing that will benefit you more spiritually than the study and the deliberate application of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit. Nothing is more useful, nothing is more beneficial to you as a believer than that, beloved, than saturating yourself in the Word of God. And here we are told that the Scriptures are profitable. They're profitable. The Word is useful. Helpful, beneficial. In fact, Paul uses four nouns after the word profitable here to show us the practical benefits of the study and application of the word of God. And I want us to see these together. First of all, notice in verse 16, the scriptures are beneficial for teaching. They're profitable or beneficial for teaching. Here, Paul is referring to the act of teaching specifically. To instruction and the impartation of truth from the Word of God. Think about it. When we gather on Sunday mornings or we gather throughout the week and maybe in your small groups, there's this constant exposure to the Word of God and to the impartation of truth. Here today you are hearing the Word of God being preached and taught. It's formally being instructed. And that preaching and teaching and exposure should be biblical, it should be sound, it should be healthy teaching. And that can only happen when the Word of God is being taught and not man's opinions. Amen? I'll tell you what, if any of you move on as far as the like, Lord takes you somewhere else in terms of your job, or maybe for whatever God-ordained circumstance, beloved, listen to me. Please, I plead with you, find a church that is that teaches the Bible. Find a church that teaches the Bible. I know it should go without saying these days that every church had to teach the Bible. Unfortunately, many a church does not teach the Bible. Many a church doesn't do that. The scriptures are beneficial for teaching We all need the consistent, regular exposure to the Word of God by means of the teaching of the Word of God. Yes, the private study of the Word of God as well, by which you are exposed to the Word of God, but also the corporate dimension where you are taught the Word of God. And we have tons of resources these days. Apps that you can download where you can hear sound biblical teaching of men who have been uh, studying the Word of God for years and years and years. Listen to the Word of God. Sit under the regular teaching of the Word of God. But notice... That's only the beginning, exposure to the word of God. Verse 16 says that the scriptures are profitable or beneficial for reproof, for reproof. Reproof refers to correction, to the refuting of error in both our thinking and practice. When we are taught the word of God, the scriptures convict. And listen, the scriptures should expose our sin. The Scripture should expose our sin because we are sinners and sin is a terrible enemy. A terrible enemy. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? Our hearts grow callous and hardened quite easily. So we need daily, moment by moment, exposure to the Word of God so that it exposes our sin, beloved. So when we gather for preaching and teaching... We gather so that the Word of God convicts us and exposes our sin. Otherwise, it's the tickling of the ears that you don't need. It should expose your sin. As you study privately and you look into the mirror of the Word, the error of your thinking and of your attitudes and of your living and of your words should be exposed. That's what the Word of God does. It cuts, does it not? It cuts. It convicts. This is why biblical teaching must instruct and inform the mind, but it must also reprove, expose sin, for it is a terrible and deceptive, destructive enemy, beloved. It is terrible. It is destructive. It ruins your life. So notice, the Scriptures are profitable, beneficial for teaching and for exposing our sin, beginning with our hard attitudes, our motives, our affections. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 16. The scriptures are profitable or beneficial for correction. For correction. This word correction has a sense of restoring something to its right place. Of rebuilding something that has been broken. So number one, we expose ourselves to God's word, to instruction or to teaching. Our sin is exposed, reproved. But then, we are then restored and renewed as we repent of our sin, we confess it, we ask for God's forgiveness and that of others, and we are restored back. There's correction that takes place in our life. There's a turning away from sin. And we pursue greater Christ-likeness. So the Scriptures are beneficial for correction. And then notice, the Scriptures are beneficial for training in righteousness. For training and righteousness in verse sixteen, ultimately, it must show in the way that we live application of the Word of God is key, is it not? The word training is used of a father's discipline in Ephesians six or the discipline of God in first corinthians eleven thirty two The scriptures are beneficial because by them God trains us and disciplines us in righteousness in right living. Righteousness refers to the acceptable moral conduct that pleases God. And that can only happen, by the way, that you're acceptable to God if you are in Christ. We who are His children are to be putting off sin and practicing righteousness, walking in holiness, being set apart from sin and devoted to good works. The Scriptures train us in righteousness, and the kind of, of living that God approves of. That is done, now as believers, motivated by gratitude and love for what God has done for us. So notice, the benefits of Scripture are amazing, are they not? We are to be taking in a steady diet of God's Word. Scripture is profitable for teaching. We are to be, have our sin exposed as we are taught by the Scriptures. Scripture is profitable for reproof. We realize what needs to be corrected as we're exposed to the Word of God and we're restored and rebuilt in our lives as we turn from those sins and put on the mind of Christ. Scripture is profitable for correction. And in all of this, God, by the Scriptures, is training us and disciplining us to obey and do what is right before Him. Walking in holiness and righteous living scripture is profitable for training in righteousness beloved the scriptures are beneficial for personal holiness god wants us to be set apart from sin unto righteous living that is consistent with his character that is what he desires for us he wants us to be separate from sin and doing righteousness and he uses the, the scriptures, the instrument of the scriptures in the hands of the Spirit of God to bring about that conformity to Christ's likeness. Now listen, this whole process of holiness and righteous living is not it's just something that happens, right? It is not just a let go and let God. It requires training and discipline. It requires maximum effort on our part if we're going to see spirit and power change in our lives. Think about, think about running the, a 26.2 marathon. Think about the Christian life in that way. How many of us could get up from here and tomorrow morning, Monday morning, be able to run a 26.2 mile marathon? Some of us are in really good shape. We may be able to do that. Most of us, uh-uh, we'll be dead by the second mile, Right? You can't run a 26.2 mile marathon if you're not in shape. What do you need? You need some serious conditioning. You need to, to work out diligently. You need to work your way to that particular mile or 26.2 distance. You need to work. You need to train for this race if you're going to be physically fit to be able to run that 26.2 mile marathon. So it is in the Christian life. We need to work hard if we want to be holy and we want to be like Christ. We need to be spiritually fit, beloved. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. See, some of us wonder for years. Lord, why am I this way? How come I see little to no change in my life? How come I never seem to grow? And yet, I've had many people like that in my in my office or in counseling over the years. And by and large... When I asked them questions about their own personal devotion before the Lord, 80 to 90% of those cases, the people don't even read their Bibles. And they're genuine believers. Who hardly... They, they go and, they, and they, they take a little... They dabble in the, in the scriptures. They read a little bit here and a little bit there. They do the daily bread for 30, 40 years of their life. Nothing against a daily bread. Okay? But, you know, you need to move on to maturity, Right? We need to be delving into the scriptures and digging deep. When you talk to some of these people, they don't memorize the word of God. They don't meditate upon scripture. They don't delight in the God who is revealed. They don't deliberately and purposefully apply the word of God to their lives. And then they wonder why they don't grow or there's baby steps in their growth. There is no struggle in many people's lives to expose themselves to a steady diet of God's word and prayer. You know what else too? They are in no accountability group where they're encouraged to pray and to study. To be mutually encouraged by other believers and to be that source of of investment into somebody else. And then they wonder why they're not growing. And I grieve for some of us who are in that situation. Some of us want to accomplish great things for God and I'm so encouraged by that. But we're not willing to work hard. We're not willing to put in the effort, beloved. Beloved. But scripture tells us that if we want to be holy and godly and be used of God, we must give maximum effort toward Christ-likeness, right? 1 Timothy 4.7 says this, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. The word discipline there refers to the rigorous, intense training of an athlete for an athletic event. The self-denial that athletes go through and the sacrifice to position themselves to win the race or win that particular athletic event. That's the picture here. So it is in the Christian life, beloved. No pain, no gain is true also for the Christian life. No pain, no gain. It's not just let go and let God Maybe you've done this. Ask some of, of um, some mature believers in your life. What is the key to a vibrant life of holiness? Ask them that. I've done that. And in most of the cases, you know what the answer is? The answer to a life of holiness and a faithfulness is discipline. Hard work. Every single day doing the little things. Delighting in the Word of God. Seeing the God of Scripture. Meditating. Upon the Word of God. Memorizing the Word of God. Applying the Word of God. I remember one man telling me, when I asked him, what is the key to an effective ministry? I think he was quoting Pastor MacArthur. But he says, Campus, the key to a successful ministry of preaching is glue your tushy to the chair and study. (laughs) Don't get up until you get the point of the passage right. I think that was originally from Pastor MacArthur. But this guy kind of gave me his own interpretation of that the diligent disciplined study of the word of god and that the spirit of god works in us beloved he is the one who is making us more and more like christ right but it takes hard work on our part this is why paul likens the christian life to an all-out effort of an athlete to win a race or a boxing match listen to first corinthians chapter 9 verse 24 Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. What is he talking about? Extreme discipline, self-denial, saying no to yourself, no to your flesh, no to your pleasures. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, he's talking about believers, we an imperishable wreath. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul is saying that like an athlete who practices self-denial and goes through rigorous self-discipline and conditioning, so the Christian should do the same. Literally, knocking out the bodily urges that disqualify you from gospel work. Aggressive. You want to be holy, beloved. Give maximum effort. Give maximum effort. You want to be like Jesus? Study the word of God expose yourself regularly to healthy teaching and personal bible intake that exposes your sin that restores you and trains you in righteousness see we study the bible for personal holiness so that christ is formed in us so that we would become more and more like jesus right not just for knowledge sake not just for so we could be uh, stimulated intellectually so that we could pontificate to others about everything that we know? No, we study the Word of God so that in the hands of the Spirit of God, He may empower us and He may sanctify us, and we become more and more like Jesus. And don't forget that no matter how much effort you give, at the end of the day, this is all a mighty work of the Spirit of God, right? Doesn't matter how much we do, How much discipline is there? If you're not walking in dependence upon the Spirit of God, nothing happens. He is the engine. The Spirit of God is the engine of change. This is why Paul says in Philippians 2 and verse 12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does he mean? Give maximum effort. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But listen to this. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Ultimately, it is the Spirit working in and through you, beloved, that brings about conformity to Christ. And I'm thankful for that. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit of God, by means of the Word of God, convicts us of sin. As the Word of God is taught, He prompts us to apply the Word of God purposefully and deliberately so that we become more and more holy. Christ-likeness is fueled by the Spirit of God, right? Fueled by the Spirit of God. So study the Bible for proper worship. Study the Bible for personal holiness. And thirdly, study the Bible for ministry effectiveness. Study the Bible for ministry effectiveness. Notice what he says in verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then verse 17. So that, here's the result, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Here we move from personal holiness to the realm of our Christian service before God. There shouldn't be one single Christian sitting in here who does not want to be effective, productive, and useful. Right? Anybody doesn't want to be productive or useful? All of us want that. All of us want to be fruitful for the Lord. We want to get to the end and face our Heavenly Father someday. And that He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? We all want to get to that point. Well, the result of the diligent study and application of the scriptures, is that you will be effective in life and in Christian ministry. That is the result. Notice that the scriptures make the man or woman of God fit and ready for service. You want to be a godly man or a godly woman who is useful to the master? It's going to be through the study of the scriptures being saturated with the word of God. Applying the word of God to your life so that you will be fit for service. Did you know... That God saved you so that you might do some good works? Did you know that? God saved you, not just so that you don't go to hell. God saved you so that you would be devoted to good works. He's prepared some good works beforehand, hasn't he? Ephesians 2 verse 10 says this, writing to believers, We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for or unto good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared certain good works for you to accomplish. It's part and parcel of why he saved you, beloved. Good works are the fruit of a transformed person. And they are absolutely essential for us to be engaged in. Notice. I said that works are the fruit of a genuine faith, right? The root of our justification is the work of Christ. The fruit of our justification are the good deeds that the Spirit of God produces in and through us. And good works are good and profitable, are they not? They're encouraged for us who are believers. Not as a way to gain merit before God. There is only one, one person who has ever, ever pleased God the Father, and that was God the Son, right? He is the only one who's ever pleased Him. So our good works are not ultimately so that we may please God in a salvific sense. No, only Jesus has done that. But good works for the believer are profitable. There are things that we ought to be pursuing. This is why Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 3, verse 14. Listen to this. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. So Christians are not saved on the basis of good deeds, but having been transformed, they are to be eager to do good for the glory of God. They are eager to be about ministry effectiveness, serving Christ by serving His people. This is why Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially to those of the household of the faith. We should be doing good what is intrinsically good for other people. That is the life of the believer, worshiping God and glorifying him by serving his people, loving his people. Well, God wants to prepare you for every good work that he has prepared beforehand. He wants to prepare you for Christian service, that you may be active in that particular Christian service. So he makes you adequate. Notice that, ver- that word in verse 17, the word adequate. This is the only time it appears in the New Testament. It refers to complete, to capable, to proficient. Proficient. God wants you to be complete, capable, and proficient for every good work for Christian service. One dictionary defines adequate as a person who is able to meet all demands placed upon him or her. And then the next word takes it a step further in verse 17. He says, adequate, equipped for every good work. Interesting word equipped is that the root of the word equipped is the same as adequate, but with a short word prefix to it, and it gives equipped this sense, thoroughly furnished, fully outfitted, fully supplied, fully equipped is the idea here. The sense of the verb is that God wants you to be thoroughly equipped, fully supplied, fully outfitted, so that you are ready to do His will. Isn't that beautiful? He's so good, isn't there are so many challenges in life and ministry. So many challenges. But the Word of God is able, beloved, to thoroughly prepare you for every good work. In the words of 2 Peter 1 3, we have everything that pertains to life and godliness in the Scriptures, if you will. The Scriptures are able to equip you for every good work. God is so good that He wants you to be absolutely ready. He wants you to be absolutely ready so He provides abundant grace by means of His Word so that you are able to do every good work, every act of Christian service for His glory. Isn't He good and faithful? What a loving God we have. He makes you sufficient. Are you feeling inadequate this morning in your Christian service like you just don't cut it? Beloved, run to God who is able to make you sufficient for every good work, who is able to give you the grace Abounding grace to be able to do his work. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. See, we're all going to have opportunities to do good to a person or be involved in a particular situation or a particular thing or ministry. We're all going to have those opportunities. And the purpose of the study and application of the scriptures are that so that God may make you ready for that particular act of service, to be able to care for that, per, for that person, to be able to meet the need of that divine appointment. The scriptures are, are able to make you proficient for that particular service. I love discipleship and equipping in the church. And part of the reason I love that is because we as pastors and elders get the privilege of these, these people that come into the church to assimilate, especially if they're believers. Obviously, if they're unbelievers, we're sharing the gospel and trying to, to, to bring about salvation in their lives, or, the, or God is in their hearts as we proclaim the gospel to them. But believers who come in amongst us, I, I look at people as gifts. Gifts that we go and we unpackage. And we get to discover their gifting. And their abilities and their experiences. And how now they can invest all of that into the church. To be effective in ministry. I love that. I love the living organism of the church. Do you not? It's a beautiful thing. Everybody has something to offer, beloved. Everybody has something to bring to the table. And the scriptures are able to make you proficient to be faithful in bringing that to the table for the edification and the building up of the bride of Christ to the glory of God. And I love asking the questions, where do we need to equip this person all the more? How can we invest the word of God into them more to maximize their potential for ministry effectiveness? Well, how do we do that? We do that by means of the word of God publicly and privately, one-on-one discipling that person or those individuals investing into the word of God so that they are absolutely proficient and raised up in Christ, that they might be able to care for others in the same way. It's a beautiful thing. I love the bride of Christ and how things work like that. The diligent study and application of the scriptures results in greater ministry effectiveness. You're prepared. You're ready. Every single one of us, beloved, wants to be effective, right? Every single one of us does. The opposite of ministry effectiveness is being ineffective. Ineffective. And nothing will render you more ineffective than than the neglect of exposure and meditation and application of the scriptures. You will be rendered useless. And I don't want that for any of us. And you are not going to be useless or sitting on the sidelines for the most part. Because there are no gifts that God has given you. Because people are better than you or God doesn't want to use you or he's given you the short end of the stick. No. It's time to look in the mirror, beloved. If you are on the sidelines and you're not serving Christ and you're a professing believer, stop blaming others for why you're not serving. Stop blaming your past experiences and people burning you. And so therefore you can't be a part of the church at a high level, be a highly committed participant. You need to stop blaming other people and start looking into the mirror. What are some reasons why we're rendered ineffective? Well, first of all, we may have hidden or unrepentant sin. Hidden or unrepentant sin. We often stay away from God's Word and and ministry because we, we, we don't want people to address our sins. Maybe we're ashamed of the things that are going on in our life and ashamed to confess those sins. Or maybe we, we love our sin too much. That renders us ineffective. Don't blame it on the Word of God not being proficient. No. Laziness and slothfulness, a lack of discipline and study, renders us useless. This is why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of God, literally cutting straight the Word of God. Diligence, as opposed to laziness or slothfulness, beloved, allows you to be effective in ministry. Arrogance and pride, renders us useless or we're not able to serve at a high level capacity before the Lord in faithful ministry knowledge puffs up but love edifies or builds up your study of the word of God should be leading you to application of the word of God your knowledge should be put into practice beloved and that finds expression in self-sacrificial service for other people the practice of the one another's a high level of involvement investing into the bride of Christ the application of the word of God finds expression in the obedient practice of the one another's and Christian service. Your life should be marked by love for others, for service for others, generosity towards others, as an expression of your study and application of the word of God. Otherwise, it's useless how much you know. It doesn't matter if it's not transforming the way that you live and setting aside sin and pursuing holiness and serving other people and loving other people, it doesn't matter how much you know. What about sinful neglect of the church? That renders us useless as well. We view study as individualistic. And study is to be personal first and foremost, beloved. But it's also communal. You need others in your life to spur you on to love and good deeds, right? To study the word of God and to apply it. You need other people around you. You can't do this work on your own. This is why on a very practical level, every member of this church, if you are a believer, you should be involved in some kind of small group. You should. Formal or informal preferably formal, so that we as shepherds are able to, to watch the progress of that particular group and see where we can help. Everybody should be involved in a small group, and we have them all over the place. Men's and women's small groups, fellowship groups have home discipleship groups attached to them. We even have one-on-one discipleship going on. We can match you up with somebody who's further along in the Christian faith than you're in, who is going to encourage you in the study of the Word of God. You need to be in a small group where you can learn to study the Word of God, to discuss it and apply Scripture, and where you can cultivate those loving relationships where the Word of God is going to be expressed toward one another. You need to be involved, beloved, in relationships where others can hold you accountable to not only study the Word of God but live it as well. And you can use your gifts and your abilities to build up the church of God for the glory of Christ. We have a precious treasure in the Bible. The Holy Scripture is doing that. Precious treasure. People have given their lives for this, for this book here. So that we may have it. Treasure it. Treasure it. And it's not that you, that you love the, the, the leather in and of itself or the pages or the ink on it because you love ink. Or you love the smell of it. You love your Bible because of the God who is revealed in the Bible, Right? That's why you love the Word of God. You love your Bible. It's precious. It's a treasure. Study it, beloved. Study it for proper worship. To know the true God and to worship Him accordingly. Study for personal holiness that you may be conformed into the image of Christ as you diligently apply the Word of God and the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to apply it to your life purposefully and deliberately. And study for ministry effectiveness that you may be ready for every good work and loving service that God may have in store for you. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, what a treasure we have, Lord, in Your Word. Help us. We beg You, Lord. Break us from apathy, from indifference to Your Holy Scripture. Help us to remember that Your Word reveals You and that we must know You as You have revealed Yourself and worship You and adore You and praise You. Help us to remember that at the root of our sin is a failure to praise You for who You are. Help us to study so that we may be conformed into the image of Christ, that we may be like our exalted Lord Jesus. Help us to set aside sin as the Scriptures expose our sin and pursue Christ-likeness And help us, Lord, to study for ministry effectiveness. That we may be used at a high level in this church to build up your people, Lord. Not for selfish pride or arrogance, but for your glory. Not for self-exaltation, but for the exaltation of Christ. Help us, Lord, to be diligent students of your holy word. And we ask you all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.